Hey, welcome back to Play to Find Out, the Dungeon World podcast from the Dungeon World Discord. It's me, Arthur, or Art Project, one of your co-hosts. And it's me, Eamon, or Voidlight, your other co-host. Eamon, I'd love to share a highlight from a recent game. Absolutely. I, I, I'm metaphorically pulling up my chair to the fire right now and, and filling up my cup of mead and getting ready to, yes. to, to just have a chat oh, with you. A cup of mead would be fantastic right now. It's very hot where I am. Same. Well, I would love to share with you the story of Garanges, the jealous green dragon. Oh, tell me more. So my in-person group and I met up for a session yesterday, and I actually followed through on some of the front prep that I shared a few weeks ago, but with some modifications. I came up with some more interesting dooms and threats and cast of characters along the way, and the... Party, of course, started out just investigating this trickle of smoke pouring out of a volcano, exactly as I had had initially planned, one of my early grim portents in the front. But before long, we changed what we were up to. There was a very, very bad Undertake a Perilous Journey roll along the way, where the results were so catastrophically 6- that I ended up making um, two very hard moves against them. All of their rations were spent because they got caught in a spike pit by a local warren of gnolls that lived on the mountainside. And after negotiating their way away from a knoll patrolling party that helped extricate them from the trap, the two players and their characters went deep inside of the volcano to find the source of Whatever the smoke was, try to figure out why the fire was reignited in the belly of this mountain. And what they found there was a small forge, a fabrication operation in which 12 dwarves were working tirelessly to produce magical items for a horrible patron, Jeranges, the jealous green dragon. So, of course, they decided, well, we have to save these dwarves from their captor. We have to go and kill this dragon. This was a mistake. These are, to uh, refresh your memories out there, uh, these are my players from my in-person group, two of whom joined us in the uh, guest episode a few weeks back. One of them was playing Pierre, the fighter, half draconic himself. The other was playing Sevi, the paladin. Now, Sevi's, I, I was hopeful that the two of them could maybe survive this encounter, possibly even win. After all, Sevi, the paladin, had demanded as a boon on on his quest the protection from heat and fire that would spare him death at the hands of the dragon's hot breath and and the fighter pierre was half draconic had a certain amount of innate knowledge of how to deal with the dragon and also one of my table rule of cool fan of the character approaches is if pierre the dragon describes the name of the martial arts technique he's using to wrestle the dragon to the ground by and large, I'll give, I'll be a little fast and loose with what fictional positioning is actually possible there. So there were a couple of moments in there where I thought that maybe they could win. When the dragon dove at them, Sevi made a really smart play, jumped right into the mouth. After all, fire breath is not particularly dangerous if you are immune to heat and flame. And the inside of the mouth is a relatively vulnerable area in terms of a dragon's overall armor. So... Getting wedged in a throat with a halberd is one way to deal with uh, with taking this dragon down. And Pierre the Fighter described a martial arts technique called the Seismic Incisor Throw, wherein he grappled the individual teeth of the dragon's mouth and judo threw him past 
uh, where he was standing, which, you know, wouldn't necessarily fly at every table, but I really was into it. So definitely allowed it at mine. But unfortunately, the early run of good luck where it seemed like their strategy might pull through was inadequate to sustain them. And both characters ended up rolling last breath over the course of the fight, which means that now we get to have another adventure beyond the Black Gate. Hopefully with the rest of the party all assembled there as well. And I'm pretty excited because that's going to be a fun new angle on the campaign. Oh, so you're continuing with their characters that's, in that's the, the plan. afterlife? Yeah, one of one of my, uh, you know, when, when the first character needed to roll last breath, we decide, I said, you know, look, this is going to be a situation where you might die. And that's going to be okay. I know what will happen if you do. Um, and because both characters did end up getting six minuses on their last breath rolls, I think it'll be more fun. And that will help with overall player investment if, rather than losing these characters entirely, we get to keep these cool concepts in a different setting. Oh yeah, I'm all about that. Um, there's actually uh, one of, you know Plundergrounds? Oh, I certainly I, I do you know Plundergrounds. Do you remember, if you've been keeping up with it, they um, Ray Otis released uh, an issue uh, literally about doing adventures beyond the Black Gates? You mean issue 5? In which, yeah. he, in which he describes the start of the campaign as requiring every player to describe the starting situation for why their character is beyond the Black Gate and how they got there? That's oh, the you, one. You better believe it. And, and you've, you've caught me. I am planning on running that exact setting. Oh, man. Um, Please tell me how that goes. You better believe I will. That for a while. I'm sure that that will be a fertile ground for future highlights because Absolutely. I'm excited. Plus, it's a great way for me to get everyone back on the same page after a couple of weeks of inconsistent group compositions. If we all come back to it and everyone says, oh, yeah, uh, this is how my character died on the quest that we didn't actually play so that, you know, when the full party is reassembled, everyone has a cool story about how they got there. And now we're all in the same place again. Or didn't die but performed a ritual to project their spirit out to the black yeah. gates while their also, bodies preserved somewhere also yeah. an option i think i'm gonna have all of my players describe their heroic death though oh okay interesting because and and you know i should also i should also say one thing i was extremely surprised at was that my players managed to do a whole eight hit points of damage to our 16 hit point dragon which was a lot oh. more than i was expecting uh or rather a lot more than maybe i should have expected thinking back on it um so I'm I'm proud of them for that. It's good. The um, yeah, we we were talking a little bit pre-show about um, oh well, I, we'll get into this in, in meta talk. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Um, I I did have a, a little little tale of my own because speaking of fertile grounds for role playing, um, I've actually been able to hop in on a few open table games in the St. Louis area just since now I'm it's the summer and I don't have homework and I even though I have a job I have time to you know, sign up for evening games in local game stores. And the fact that there are local game stores is a boon of living in a more metropolitan area than I have been. So I was, I got on Meetup, which is a lot of times my go-to for metropolitan areas to find where are the people doing the games. And I identified a couple of game stores that seemed like the local hubs and then signed up for some games to drop by. And I managed to get into an evening session of a an ongoing campaign of Blades in the Dark, and um, got there a little early, rolled up two different characters, since that game is a little bit more fluid about being which, char which character behind the eyes at a given time. Uh, once the group got there, I asked them which character they'd rather I play, and then we got into it. And the highlight I want to share is that the heist itself that we did was to steal um, like 50,000 gallons of syrup from this warehouse. <laughs> That's so much syrup! It's a, it's a lot, and it's basically because like one merchant like pulled a you know a fast one on this other one to like 
have them sent to their warehouse and the other one is paying us to get it back. Yeah, wait, hang, but hang syrup on. Is, uh, I'm just, I'll, I don't know exactly how much syrup weighs, but it definitely weighs more than an equivalent volume of water. And each gallon of water would be eight pounds. Eight pounds, yeah. So that was a lot. That's how many tons of syrup that you have to move? Enormous amount. Good God. We ended up, I, I'll, t- I'll tell you what we did, but the, the, just the fact that it, that was the, you know, the premise mm-hmm. was already a hook that we were all so bought in on yeah. that they were describing it to the, the players who had been in that campaign for a while when we were done. They were like, this is one of the most fun sessions we've done. And I was really happy to be there for it. Um, just because it's it was kind of an absurd premise, but like just enough that like it was it's the right type of crazy, you know, for, for totally. us to like undertake that job. Because we went in there, we were being like, how are we going to move this? Like, we had no idea. And we were able to use flashbacks and stuff to like set up something. Um, and there was a lot of good stuff in that session. But the, the, first of all, the idea that syrup is a contraband that's like a heavily controlled substance is hilarious, right? And is and is flavorful as well to the tone of Duskfall, you know, and the, mm-hmm. the, the, the city of, of Blades in the Dark because, you know, it's very grim and like confectionery like that would be reserved for the, the upper class and, and syrup comes from real trees, right? Which there aren't even a lot of and stuff like that. But um, the... So we, we, we end up just starting a massive riot and managing to slip inside, kind of doing um, uh, the need help gimmick of like one character who's dressed up like a, a guard and they were like arresting each of us individually, bringing us inside for questioning during the riot. So we were all in there. You know, we, we ended up, you know, choking some people out, getting some stuff. And then we had three massive tankers uh, that our, our cohorts were controlling that we ended up blowing a hole in the wall and then pumping the syrup out of the vats into the tankers and holding people off long enough for all of them to be filled up, which is represented by various blocks. Nice. You know? Yeah. But yeah, bringing that to Dungeon World, just the idea of the the premise um, being something that had a lot of player buy-in and being able to suggest plans and discard them readily. Because once we got in there, I suggested that like we had... Um, I was like, what if by this time we had set up magic charms that each of us had that we could plant around the room and teleport these vats into our own warehouse? Mm. Like, what, like, how much stress would we have to take to like have set something elaborate like that up? That sounds and like the a two players, stress each flashback to me. Whoa. But the, the other players and the GM all um, kind of shot the idea down because they said that their campaign really, like, they've never seen that kind of magic before and it just didn't fit mm-hmm. and they were kind of running with very low magic. So like I, I wanted, I was, had to be flexible enough to be like, okay, you know, let's just do something else. You know, let's get a, uh, some other way that this year, you know, I also suggested this is coming from my own, like weird magic background that we have a charm that each of us drink down the syrup with like impossibly large quantities oh, and then just walk like, out of there. One of these. No. Yeah. And then just once we get back to our base, like regurgitate vats full of syrup like over the course of hours but they were like yeah no let's not do that either yeah. <laughs> and so we end, went, ended up just going with some tankers <laughs> hey you know what all things considered i would rather that we have some physical uh vehicle tankers rather than becoming the tankers ourselves as players <laughs> yeah there are a couple of things i love about that but maybe first and foremost is that obvious it is obvious to me that the gm did not have a plan for how he or she would do it right yeah which i think is such, it's such an easy mistake to make where you come up with an adventure and you come up with how you as the GM would solve it. And then you're just really excited for your players to figure out how they how you want them to solve it. Yeah, and it's possible to set yourself up for disappointment. Totally. It's so easy to come up with something that you think is really cool because you know how you would do it. 
and then not end up and then have it not execute that way because they don't touch any of it. Like in in a, one of my games, um, we had a heist of a of a float of a parade float filled with valuable valuable stuff getting smuggled into a city, and I thought, oh, they're going to lift the drawbridge at, on the parade route in order to pull the float away from the rest of from the rest of the marching people. And then they're going to raid the float up there and toss all the contraband off into the river below where mermaids will gather it up and, and steal it away. They did none of that. They turned down a side street and it was awesome. But I also, you know, it was reminded you got to you got to go into these things not having a plan for your players, because if you do, then what they end up doing won't fall into the prep that you've done. Yeah. Blades in the Dark as a system is good at teaching those lessons. Totally. Which is, has made me a better Dungeon World GM. Absolutely. Things. Well, speaking of being better Dungeon World GMs, it's time for us to jump into our adventure workshop. Today, we're going to be focusing in on a playbook. We're having another playbook episode. Today is playbook. The Fighter. Now, I'm on record as saying over and over again how much I love The Fighter as a playbook, and there are a few reasons for that. But before I get into what I love about The Fighter, Eamon, what do you have to say on the subject? So I feel pretty prepared right now. I have pulled up in front of me the default uh, Fighter playbook, um, and additionally, I have pulled up another version of The Fighter playbook that is one of my favorites, which is... Um, Yohai Gal's uh, one-shot world version. Of Ooh, Fighter. I've heard that one-shot world is a really great set of of uh, is a really great starter kit for running a one-shot in Dungeon World. It is a brief shout out for that is that if you want uh, to introduce Dungeon World to a new group and specifically you're doing it in surprise surprise a one-shot where there won't be continuing uh, sessions necessarily or you want to do a test session that might lead to further sessions but might not. Uh, One-Shot World is a great way to go. It expedites character creation a little bit. It includes some helpful reminders on the playbooks of things that get off forgotten, and it trims away some things that are only necessary for ongoing campaigns, for example, um, XP and advances and things like that. And it puts at your disposal the ability to get the cool bits of the playbook to the forefront more quickly in um, in a way that you might want to have a little bit more control over in if you were going to be spending a lot of time with a character, but if you were going to just simply have a one-shot, you just want something flavorful. Mm -hmm. uh, here's an example of that. The default uh, fighter playbook, their main jam, you know, the, the, the core special thing about the fighter is that they have a signature weapon. They have this, this weapon... Um, as per the text of the move, uh, there are many like it, but this one is yours. It's your best friend. It's your life. You master it as um, you master your life. Your weapon without you is useless. Without your weapon, you are useless. Wield it true. And you basically like fill in some different boxes um, to create what this weapon is, like the fictional tags, how much it weighs, how much damage it does, um, you know, the different tags associated with it. And um, on the one-shot world version, you simply pick from... Uh, five different pre-made signature weapons, but they're all so flavorful that they show you like why the fighter is cool. Because it's easy, uh, I, I I think for some players to look at this and be like, oh, I just get like you know an axe, you know that is well crafted. I want weighs less. I want a know. sword that glows when there are orcs. You know, it's like oh, how, you know how creative. But when you look at this, you just see the possibilities. The the first, um, the first. One that I was reading down the list, um, the Bielgrim 
The great sword of a legendary knight. This weapon can always sense the taint of darkness or chaos and reacts in its presence. When you strike a creature of darkness or chaos with this weapon, it ignites with holy fire. You either deal plus one before damage or suppress one of its unnatural powers. Like, that's a weapon that speaks a lot to the character. You know, sure. Why do they have that, you know? And it conveniently is a really good flag for our GM. If you pick that weapon, you had better be fighting some creatures of darkness or your GM is not being a good enough fan. Yeah, and, and, and it's also just screaming to be like use in interesting scenes, right? Like you hit a vampire with that and then he like takes the blow and tries to like poof into smoke and like rush away and he can't. You know, like you've 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 suppressed that power. That'd be interesting. The um the fighter is about combat and its cost, I feel like, in terms of the the tone of the fighter. Um and a lot of their moves uh focus on uh I think I'd venture to say that when I was first reading through the Dungeon World um, playbooks, and I was coming from a, a D&D background, right, of having played a good amount of 5th edition, and I was seeing which playbooks um, sort of did that character type better than uh, D&D, and which um, just did it, like, okay. Uh, for example, like, I read through The Wizard um, in The Wizard for um, Dungeon World, and I thought, really, okay, like, that's it's at least a, a quicker approach in the wizard. Like I would have a little more fun playing this, um, playing this character just in terms of the mechanics and less bookkeeping. But thematically, it was about the same. Whereas the fighter, I, I when I read the Dungeon World, um, you know, the Dungeon World playbooks of the fighter, I was sold on the idea of a fighter as a class in the way I definitely hadn't been in D anD. Like the fighter was always like the sort of default choice, the boring choice in my mind. But reading through, like especially like, the advanced moves for the fighter and just the fact that they get the signature weapon. Um, which they definitely, you know, that's not something that's really highlighted in, in D&D. So coming from D&D 5th edition, I had certain ideas about the sort of theme and the fictional coolness of certain character types. Um, and, I, and I was interested to see how Dungeon World represented those same things. The wizard, for example, I got about the same feeling from, like in terms of how it might feel to play a wizard um, in, in Dungeon World as it did in 5th edition, um, except that mechanically it might just be a little easier in terms of bookkeeping. But the types of scenes and stuff that were evoked in my mind were the same, which is not to say I didn't like it. I love the wizard. But the fighter in uh, D&D had always been like a sort of default or, or maybe even a boring character choice for me that I, I wasn't really drawn to. I mean, what you got from being the fighter was just you could hit things progressively harder and you were able to you know pick up any weapon and be lethal with yeah. it. But in Dungeon World, the fighter was, there was like story there, like automatically, like baked into the character with the signature weapon. And there were two specific moves reading the playbook that both me and my characters were both like, oh man, I want to play the fighter. And those are, aside from the basic moves, uh, Blacksmith, which is one of the advanced moves. Great move. Which basically allows, allows the character, if they have access to a forge, to graft the magical powers of a weapon they have found onto their signature weapon, and um, which destroys the magical weapon in the process. So they basically, over time, they're basically adding, adding more abilities to their signature weapon, which is phenomenal. And the other one is one of their um, sort of master moves, the six to ten level moves, uh, which is through Death's Eyes. Yes, uh, this is a phenomenal one. When you go into battle, you roll plus wisdom. On a 10 plus, you name someone who will live and someone who will die. On a 7 to 9, you name someone who will live or someone who will die, and you must name NPCs, not player characters. The GM, or I think 
I think it's intended that name NPCs, not player characters, just goes for both. I, that is my understanding, too, yes. Yeah. The GM will make your vision come true if it's even remotely possible, and on a 6-, minus, you see your own death, and you consequently take minus one ongoing throughout the battle. Yeah. This is, like... It's one of my favorite moves. A, it's one of yeah. my favorite moves in the whole game. It's it, it also speaks to the fighter of them just, like, sort of predicting the battle and being able to have almost this prescience of just how this is going to go. Um, and, you, I mean, the thing, the thing with being able to select who's going to live and who's going to die, I know some characters who would potentially select an ally, right, for, like, who's going to die. And remember, it's this NPC is not player characters. Just because, you know, that's... They might select one ally to die and one ally to live because the fighter is able to maneuver in the battle to, you know, accidentally cause the death, you know, make it seem like an accident and cause the death of another character. You know, like that, that sort of thing, it, the fighter would be skillful enough to do. And that pushes the fighter into spaces that we don't often see them. I'd also like to shout out the fighter move Heirloom from the 2 to 5 set, where you get to roll Charisma, which is a fun thing to be rolling as a fighter. And ask your, I think it's charisma anyway, it might be wisdom, I'm not looking at the It sheet. is charisma, I'm um, looking at it right now. And you get to ask questions about uh, about what's going on, basically, to your weapon, as though it, you're, it, it, it just, it has this great, like, cleric or paladin flavor of getting GM-level information from your playbook. As a, And I'm, I'm always excited when a playbook gives you an option for that sort of thing. Then also there's Interrogator, which, uh, per our conversation about social skills a couple weeks ago, is a useful thing to have on hand in order to get leverage, uh, just as a way to make leverage, violence as leverage, even more firmly encoded into what your party can do. It's a great option. Uh, for those of you who don't know off the top of your head, Interrogator lets you roll parlay plus strength if you are using threats of violence as leverage. The Fighter is a playbook also that has some strictly meta elements for example there's a an advanced move called eye for weaponry where it says when you look over an enemy's weaponry ask the gym how much damage they do that's telling you out of character like this is you know the die that i'll be rolling like for how much damage this does which allows you to make meta evaluations of you know how many turns is going to take me to you know how many hits can i take from this enemy before i die um and like you you can judge threat on like a out of game level which is interesting, and I think I think works in this case, but it's something that not all playbooks do. Um, I think there's something... I've seen that in um, third-party playbooks, like things that allow you to know what tags an enemy has, for example. Uh, I've seen Monster Hunter playbooks that or know exactly how much health an enemy has left, um, which isn't always clear in fiction. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting space, and maybe, maybe the topic of another episode, but I think it's interesting that the fighter... Um, that that's one way of representing mechanically the fact that they are an expert fighter yeah. is that they, they can you know j- gauge exactly the, th- the threat that they're up against. Totally. Uh, now speaking of things that make fighters cool and flavorful, I think we would be fools if we didn't spend a little time talking about signature weapons and the construction thereof. Because I think there are a few Absolutely. places where especially new players can get sidetracked, and. Uh, where where the rules are not necessarily encoded directly into the character sheet that they that they have in front of them. Now, I love almost every single one of the fighter signature weapon options, but the first time I played the fighter, I had no clue whatsoever what perfectly weighted add precise could possibly mean. So, Amen, what does precise mean in the context of Dungeon World? 
So the thing, the thing here is that you're you're gonna have to ask your gym about that because it simply it does not uh, say it anywhere on the playbook. It says it in the dungeon world rulebook. And what precise does is when you attack with a precise weapon uh, using hack and slash, you're actually gonna be allowed to roll dex instead of strength, which is like always the normal hack and slash move. And that basically allows you to create a character who is um, a very good at ranged combat, but also very good at um, at uh, close combat mm-hmm. at the same time by by giving them more like swashbuckler or uh, duelist yeah. style. Uh, the rapier, for example, is the classic precise weapon. Yeah. Um, and so this allows you, if you want to have a fighter that um, they're they're uh, you've got more points to spend, so to speak, because you don't have to dump stats into strength and dex simultaneously. You can just focus dex. Uh, and let them be good in close combat and range combat, then you can, you know, choose the precise. It's a, it, honestly, it's a very, very good option compared to some of the other ones. One, one thing that does, um, I kind of make me raise an eyebrow about the choose two enhancements move and then is a potential trap is that there are two different ones that, um, give you plus one damage to your weapon, which a lot of players might think doesn't seem like a lot, but plus one damage is fairly significant in Dungeon World. Mm-hmm. Um, serrated edges simply gives you plus one damage to your weapon, whereas hooks and spikes gives you plus one damage, but plus one weight. So if you're only going to take one of those, you would always want to take, you know, serrated edges because it's plus one damage with no downsides. Uh, it exists there that you could take both for plus two damage, but plus one weight. But for some reason, hooks and spikes is first. For sure. Now, Um, I do think hooks and spikes as a concept is really cool and for fictional positioning purposes having a heavier weapon can have impact beyond just the mechanical number for against your load that's true yeah there's there additionally there there's an option there well crafted that simply subtracts one weight so i mean there the, the fighter has certain elements where if they're in your game and they select those things they're gonna feel like they made a meaningless choice if weight never comes up you know what i'm saying so it's something that you really have to be careful with otherwise those are, are options that players tend to never take additionally just simply the fact that hooks and spikes is first um makes people often overlook serrated edges and so if they're just taking one ask them like hey um are you did you notice that there's this other one that gives you plus one damage without plus one weight and if they're like no i want my weapon to be heavier then then you know that they're like really not thinking that it's just something to look out for. Totally. Uh, there's there's just weird overlap between a couple of those things. Yeah. Um, now let's take a yeah. second and talk about sharp, which gives you plus two piercing. Eamon, what does that mean? So the way armor works in Dungeon World um, is that it's damage negating. So whatever damage you do, you su- you're subtracting the enemy armor value from that, both for damage to the characters and for damage to monsters, and Piercing basically is a reverse negation of the armor itself. So if I do four damage to someone with one armor, I'm going to end up only doing three damage, right? Because they they knock that damage down by one. But if I do four damage and I have plus one piercing, then I ignore one point of their armor, which would allow me to do the full four damage. And the overflow on there, um, like if I had four damage and two piercing, it would just be the same. It would be four damage to them. Um, and sometimes for enemies with very high armor, this can make you be able to really affect them yeah, at all. turn the tide So about. think about this. If you're the wizard and you're trying to hit something with your D4 damage die and has four armor, there's no way that you're going to hurt it at all. Because even if you do max damage, their armor negates everything you just did. So you're either going to need to use something that ignores armor, like a spell, or you need to use a weapon that has piercing, right? Or like a, maybe a ballista would have piercing, like something that is going to punch through armor a good deal. And um, 
say you have something that has three piercing and you're the wizard, even if uh, you roll only a two on your damage die, you still get that one damage because uh, the uh, against something with four armor, which is which yeah can, again th- these um, single digit uh, values can turn the tide of battle in dungeon world, which is what is so interesting and makes it every point counts. Absolutely, is what I'm trying to say. Um, now finally, I think there's just one more attribute that I think we need to cover: huge, add messy and forceful. This is speaking for me, my absolute favorite option for a fighter signature weapon. All of my weapons are huge when I play Dungeon World as a fighter. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this could almost stand to be split up into two different ones yeah. and combined. Like like forceful, but plus one weight, you know, or, or messy and plus one damage would make sense, but totally. messy and forceful are two incredible tags. Yeah. Um, and here's what they do. Uh, messy means that this weapon doesn't simply give people cuts, right? This is a weapon that uh, does horrendous damage, mm-hmm. right? That it disembowels people, it dismembers them, or it's it's otherwise doing something that is, you know, putting arterial blood off the walls yeah. and like really creating it a mess. Obliterates. I, the way I think it of this dismantles. is uh, it eradicates. I think of uh, a a mall, right? Like hitting someone with a mall is going to like crush their skull, not just stabbing them with a dagger, and they sort of just gently bleed out. Or a lightsaber, right? That it's mm. actually cutting off limbs. It's not simply just giving people cuts. Forceful, uh, and, and before I move on to forceful, actually, it might seem like, okay, that's cool, but what does that do in-game? It's about fictional positioning, which is something that is um, a, a real difference between Dungeon World and other games, that the fictional positioning um, it matters when you're adjudicating the results of a move and what you can attempt mm-hmm. to do. If you have a messy weapon, you might have the sort of justification to kill an enemy and then turn and try to intimidate their foes right because they just saw you take that guy apart like that's going to like be a psychological toll potentially right um whereas otherwise maybe you're not able to roll for that intimidation because you just killed someone the normal way additionally uh messy makes it hard to hide the results of a killing you know so if you kill someone with a messy weapon there's blood all over the place it's going to be hard to just simply Move, remove the yeah. body the way that you could if you just stabbed. you're not going to be able to steal Four. his uniform and put it on and sneak into oh, the party yeah. now it's, his uniform is gone you know um forceful is fictional justification for a weapon that makes staggers people pushes them back or potentially even knocks them prone mm-hmm. on a hit um so if you want to say like oh i like smash this guy to the ground um that is the type of thing that the gm should be more lenient with and more um fictionally uh, playing that up if you have a forceful weapon because that's what those weapons are designed to do um and and how that looks in fiction can be various you know maybe this weapon is a long pole and it's forceful because you can easily trip people or push people back with it or maybe it's simply a tiny dagger but anytime this dagger makes contact with someone a thunderclap happens and like magically shoves them away right um uh, the hammer mm-hmm. the war hammer is the traditional totally. forceful weapon and that's up to your table there are really no limits on what forceful can mean to you as long as fictional positioning wise you kind of stick with that core yeah. belief as both a gm and a player i tend to be lenient with the fictional uh side of these enhancements for the signature weapon for example i'll let them take messy and forceful 
but their weapon doesn't have to be huge. Like, they tell me, like, why it's messy and why it's forceful. And similarly, like, if they want plus one damage, it doesn't have to have serrated edges. Like, they can tell me why it has totally. plus one damage. And that's up to... Yeah, and, and it, of course, it can be huge for a dagger, which just means, well, what, why is it still a dagger and not a hand-and-a-half sword? You know, what... Yeah. I get... To me, that's about right. That Or, yeah, like, a dagger to me is sort of a pokey, stabby weapon. Huge dagger, probably... Four or five times a huge size. dagger would be like a meat cleaver, yeah. you know, something which like actually that. I have played that exact character concept of a of a former kitchen hand who stole a very, oh, very awesome. good knife from his former employer and went off to avenge his father. That was a fun weapon oh, to use. Messy, forceful, there, serrated edges. There's a character in a super niche video game out there called Dungeons of the Endless, where this character is called Chef Nanor. And he's sort of this like exiled chef and he fights with his giant meat cleaver. And I, I've always wanted to play a chef character. Yeah, meat cleavers are a fun weapon. Um, not to mention a fun cooking utensil for when you're chefing it up for your players in real life. Check out our food episode for more about that. So yeah, are there any other moves to the fighter you want to call out? Any other good examples well, that you've seen a fighter play? I, I just want to call out one more thing to be doing as a GM, especially in a one-shot context when a fighter is available to you. Make sure you're giving them a bar to bend or a gate to lift. Trigger bend bars, lift gates. It's one of the really fun ways that a fighter gets to contribute to the party and keep the momentum going. So it's it's something where especially a new player will be really encouraged to look at the things a fighter can do outside of the fighting right off the bat. So I encourage all you GMs out there, keep an eye out for those opportunities because they're the it best. It also doesn't have to be um, traversing something. Like it doesn't have to be break a door, break a portcullis. It could be that, that there's this magical obelisk at the end of the dungeon that is like sending out waves of negative energy. How are we going to destroy this thing? And the fighter's like, I can just smash it. You yeah. know, I use pure strength to destroy an inanimate obstacle, which is yeah. what that is. You know, Obstacles can be very varied, a very varied thing for sure. Well, for me, that just about covers the fighter. If you have questions about a fighter or you want to suggest to us other things for us to focus on, don't forget to email or tweet or post on the Discord, and we'll be sure to bring those up in a future episode. But for now, I think it's time for us to jump into the next segment of our conversation today with Meta Talk. So today, inspired by the highlights that uh, that Arthur gave earlier, talking about his players fighting and, in fact, dying to... Uh, Geren- how do you say that? Gerenges? Uh, yeah. Gerenges, the jealous green dragon. I might Gerenges have pronounced it Gerenges yesterday. I'm not sure. We'd have to ask the dragon itself. Yes. Um, you were talking about how, uh, how to sort of signal the level of threat of something, especially if the campaign hasn't been particularly lethal thus far, and how to almost let the players know that it is okay to run away from this fight and perhaps even advisable. Um, that's something that, uh, we touched on briefly in another episode, and we're referencing all kinds of previous episodes. Totally. But in our episode about combat as war versus combat as sport, signaling that, hey, if you guys roll up on any random monster, it might be overpowered for you. And you might have to sort of fight dirty to compensate or simply know to avoid the fight. That's something that signaling to your players that this is the case, um, is hard to do elegantly. I think, one easy way is to simply tell the players, like, hey, I'm looking at the numbers here, and you guys might not survive this fight, you know, play accordingly. And some players will be like, okay, my character doesn't know that, though, and I'm fine with that, and I want to see this character get in over their head. And some people might be like, oh, good, I, I really don't want to lose my PC, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dip out. Um, but signaling that in character, 
I, I suppose is what we want to talk about here. Yeah. Um, you, or, were, you were referencing yeah. the 16 hit point dragon. Arm. Totally. So the 16 hit point dragon is something we've talked about before. It's all about why the dragon in dungeon world seems like it doesn't have very many hit points, especially compared to the maximum damage output of any given PC. I feel like I read somewhere that the theoretical maximum damage output that a single PC is capable of in Dungeon World is something like 107 hit points of damage total. I don't remember exactly how they got there, but it was a fighter with a particular weapon with other particular advanced moves that add extra dice to the pool, rolling every single die perfectly, maybe twice if they've got the human uh, racial move. Point being, in theory, you should be able to kill a dragon in one hit in Dungeon World according to the rules. So why is it that they only have 16 hit points? And it's all about fictional positioning. It's all about your ability to actually fight against it. And so if we look at it from the other perspective, how do we show our players that the fictional positioning is such that 16 hit points is an unattainable or at least extremely dangerous goal to attempt? And there are a few different ways that I feel like you can do that. Eamon, I really actually like the tell your players straight up they might die if they try this because, you know, tell them the requirements and consequences and then ask is one of our moves, right? It's specifically there to facilitate us having that conversation at the table and making sure we're all on the same page about it. Now, that having been said, if you want to make sure that you can show the characters that a similar conversation needs to happen, but in fiction. I, I alluded earlier to the fact that there were a bunch of dwarves that the players met before meeting Jaranji's the Great Green Dragon, the Jealous Green Dragon. And those dwarves definitely had that same conversation. Yes, the, we have been working for this guy for decades. There's no chance at escape. He, he guards us with such jealousy. And we know for certain that... It, any any fight against him will will be in vain now the players are both fully aware of exactly what's going on i actually really enjoyed though that at my table both players had a specific justification for why they wouldn't run away from that fight despite the overwhelming odds so we'll you know we'll see how that we'll, we'll see how that turns out in our next session but but I, I digress point being even if you have that conversation sometimes that's not enough to send the point home that they really are severely outmatched so then there's a second technique I think we've talked about this one before, but I want to shout it out again. There's no better way to figure out how you're to, to tell your players that something is unachievable or very, very dangerous than to ask the players to describe what it would look like if something were unbeatable to them. Ask the player, what does the dragon do that indicates that your fight against it is hopeless or, or will likely result in your own doom? Because now the players invested in that, they can have the conversation from the perspective of their character that also lets them justify why their character would either stick around or immediately turn tail and flee. Yeah, you, you, there's that's a uh, an application of technique um, known around the forums and whatnot uh, as painting the scene, where you ask a leading question. Um, so you could say like, as you gaze upon this dragon, what about it um, makes make, drives home the feeling that this is utter folly. You know, and and to just let the let the players set that up um, and, and, feed, and kind of feed that back to you, um, and that gets at I think the heart of what makes monsters scary and dangerous, which is what I, I like this approach so much. Because no matter how cool a dragon looks in a video game, if the fight's gonna boil down to like me whacking it in the like, the thigh for like twenty minutes and it's not even taking any visible damage and just a health bar is slowly decrementing, it's not that interesting, you know. And that, what's scary about the dragon then is that it has a lot of health mm -hmm. and it's just going to like be alive for a long time. And there's the threat that it might hit me one time in that long span. The idea that you could potentially kill a dragon in one hit is actually really 
tempting, interesting, and it makes the players want to develop a way to make that possible. Um, and I like the idea that killing a dragon is like all or nothing. That like when you kill a dragon, it's not going to be this battle of attrition that you're whittling it down, it's whittling you down. Yeah. It's either going to get one solid chomp at mm-hmm. you and end your life, or you're going to get that blade right yeah. in the right spot. It's and five it, minutes, you know? and that's five what, minutes of pure luck that decides whether or not exactly, you survive. Exactly, exactly. Or two seconds of singed world and and you becoming yeah. a char on the ground, yeah. you know, so. And, and there were a couple of things that my players did that, like I said earlier, I really thought that they would have a shot against this thing because they were being very clever about the ways they were positioning themselves. We were coming back to fictional positioning again because ultimately that is the core way to engage with fights that are outside of your outside of your scope as a character is to make sure that your position your combat as war style position is ready is ready to empower you to make those plays i mentioned earlier that the paladin dove head first into the dragon's mouth and started attacking it from the inside a great position but at the same time if you greet that great position, but with a description of the different ways that a dragon can attack you, even when it doesn't have its claws and its and its mobility at its uh, at its disposal, the overall fight keeps up the sense of tension where no matter what your position needs to change, you need to keep on coming up with new strategies on the fly in order to win. It's all very fun. Sorry. I'm- Additionally, um, if if you are playing a slightly more combat as war style where you know threats are as they are in the world and it's up to the players to you know shoot pick their battles appropriately and the players happen to be um, having an easy run of it like they, they fight some goblins they steamroll them they walk in on some you know some bandits that really aren't well equipped or well organized they they have an easy time of it they, they scare them off maybe even without a fight and then they stumble into the dragon's lair it still might be worth just a mention of hey guys like you might forget, but this isn't going to be like before. You're you're not going to steamroll this one, no matter how it goes, and it's going to take some out of the box thinking. Um, just letting you know that because um, it's a lot easier to take things back and have them be like, okay, maybe we don't go there, than to take it back when the dice are already rolled and the characters already yeah. dead. You know, it's it feels cheap to retcon that, whereas it might not feel cheap to be like, actually, we travel here instead. You know, or we prepare this thing. That being said. Don't shy away from those fights just because they're dangerous. I've seen really, really interesting things, even just with dragons in particular, where characters go out of their way to acquire um, nails blessed by death himself, that if they pierce something, mark it as death's own, and it's like that that could potentially take down a dragon, or a ritual that the wizard does that could potentially kill a dragon, or the fighter has to acquire a specific magic item that he has to bind with his weapon and that will allow him to kill the dragon like all that kind of stuff is campaign worthy right and that's cool and you should have dragons in your game but don't cheapen them you know just that they are like matched to the pc's level totally and make sure that when they are fighting the dragon if you realize that you're going too easy on them that you that you find a way to make to make good on that you know if you're if your dragon just seems like it's not putting up as much of a fight because you're not making enough hard moves or you're positioning it in such a way that the players have an advantage, then lean into that side of things too. Yes, it was easy to kill this dragon, but what have you done now that you've slaughtered the apex, the solitary apex predator in this monstrous ecosystem? What's that going to change about the 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 were, were elk that litter these mountaintops? You know, make sure that even if one threat is dispatched, you can still signal how big a threat there still is sort of in the void that it leaves behind. Your threat should never stop just because one thing is dead. Absolutely. I, I want to suggest one resource. Um, 
one resource that people could go and check out, um, both for threat signaling, but also specifically for just making dragons a good encounter, which is uh, issue three of Plundergrounds, The Horde. Um, this really focuses on the sort of Smaug-like approach of that this dragon um, is a whole ecosystem unto itself, that it has a massive layer. Uh, all sorts of creatures have found their own niche within that, uh, either being parasitic on the dragon or like living off of the horde, horde golems, uh, treasure hunters that lose themselves in the horde and live their entire lives out there. Um, yeah, all, all that type of stuff and more, including the dragons themselves and how dangerous they are. Find uh, Rayodas's spin awesome. in the horde. If and speaking speaking of hordes, that's another great way to signal how dangerous a dragon is. If you say, "Oh yeah, the dragon's horde just straight up has a trebuchet in it that they took from an army that they obliterated in a single afternoon's battle." Yeah, you're like, okay, this guy, um, you know, maybe he's not going to be killed by you know two thieves, you know, and a druid. You know, you you gotta you gotta do a double take. Yeah. Uh, of course, a dragon's hoard contains a variety of, of tempting treasure, but that's certainly not everything that a dragon would take as trophies. Uh, one, one thing that actually, back to the more picture this slash highlighty version of this dragon story, one of the things that the players said ver from very early on is that the hoard was littered with crowns of kings the dragon had killed over the years, and tiaras and um, and headbands, and all, all manner of other royal headgear that the dragon had taken as trophies. So, you know... What king's crown do you recognize amongst the horde, indicating that your yeah, that could indicate that maybe the fighter's birth birthplace, the army of his birthplace, has been completely slaughtered in the conflict with this with this creature, that kind of thing. I'm going to uh, link in the um, description as well um, a page from Kill Six Billion Demons, the webcomic, just because the imagery of an entire uh, battle between three different armies happening inside of the horde is incredible like airships taking off all again with just within the horde because it's so big is definitely worthwhile awesome so these are some techniques that you can use to signal the gravity of a threat against your pcs and i hope that you'll find them useful please let us know when you do use them again twitter email discord always to get in touch with us let us know how things are working out in your own games we really are looking forward to hearing more and more about the ways that we're giving you things to think about. And speaking of giving you things to think about, it's time to take a trip into our creative space with Picture This. Art, I understand that you have a creature for us. I today. do. I have a pitch for an intelligent race that lets you kind of change how you would approach your typical aquatic community. The race is the Eta. An Eta starts its life as a mobile egg, almost like a turtle. It's got little legs and it's able to ambulate just a little bit. But it doesn't really have any, any major facilities for communication or sensory input. It's mostly just wandering around trying to keep itself safe as it gestates within. And then eventually it will hatch. And out of that egg shall emerge what I would most easily describe as a squid person, which is exactly what it sounds like, a person who is a squid. You could think of this almost if you've played Splatoon as the uh, the squid kids from that. They have an obvious aquatic bend to them, but they're also clearly humanoid, intelligent, capable of reasonable societal conversation. And also from the ocean, creatures of the sea. Little gills or other means of ocean breathing are very obvious on them. And they're able to live in society and be 
active contributing members of it, especially in beachfront communities, small towns near rivers, that sort of thing. But before too long, this larval phase lapses, and these creatures once again undergo a transformation. They shed the trappings of their humanoid form, their bipedal nature, and replace it entirely with tentacles and size. And these humanoid creatures begin the bulk of their life as first normal size six foot or so long squid all the way up to giant and colossal squid wandering the oceans in massive armadas of creatures that lived amongst the land dwellers and know them well but now are people of the sea the colossal spirits Ugh. of the sea the eta picture this and also shouts to cara dill whose uh creature this is um, from our ongoing game of Uncharted Worlds, because I think this is a cool design, and I wanted to shout it out on the show. Hey, Kara, how's it going? Bonus points if you write it up as a Dungeon World monster. Bonus points, indeed. Or three different ones, I guess, for the different stages. So, Eamon, I think I heard a cringe in there somewhere. Just the idea of a um, squid, of a, a squid-like creature that walks on land and just has all of those hallmarks of the deep ocean, like palpitating uh, orifices and 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 uh, suckers and, and everything like that is a great one i like i like the sort of um nature horror body horror like in uh, especially in monsters and it makes me think of uh, aboleths and mind mm -hmm. flayers and all that sort of squiddy totally squiddy part of what i like about this creature is that it's sort of a twist on a mind flayer i think a lot of the time a mind flayer is this like evil society of of lovecraftian horrors and the, these are not horrible things. They're just other humanoids that exist in your fantasy world. And I'm really hoping there isn't already a fantasy humanoid called Eta. In my head, I'm thinking that there might be now that I've actually said it out loud a few times. So if there is one, you know, maybe we uh, replace that entirely with this other very cool thing. I don't know. It's maybe what I would do. The Eta. Is it a squid? Or is it a person? Is it somewhere in between? Is it both? Who's to say, really? Is it a squid? Is it a man? It's a plane. Oh god, a plane. A whole plane of squid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the plane of squids. It's it, There's no water, it's just masses exactly. of Exactly, the elemental plane of squid. on a bed of tentacles. <laughs> Alright. Well, speaking of dangerous humanoids from our fantasy settings, we have another question in this week from Torin Blood on the Discord. Heyman, you want to read this one out to us? So he says... It seems everyone is familiar with the 16 HP dragon and now Tucker's kobolds, but what makes orcs so dangerous in Dungeon World? Wow. What does make orcs so dangerous in Dungeon World? Orcs are such a core fantasy villain because they get at a lot of our fears in society. For better or for worse, I think a lot of those fears are rooted in some kind of racist ideologies or some, at, least at minimum, outdated ideologies about sort of the nature of people from outside of our core civilization, but that's a digression. What makes orcs dangerous in Dungeon World? Well, for starters, there is no just core orc by itself in the Dungeon World. At least not by that. Uh, yeah, that, it, instead, there are a variety of different flavors of orc, different roles in an orcish war party that are all independently statted out and explained. This... What this says to me, and what it said to me the first time I was reading through Dungeon World, was that the designers, Sage and Adam, were concerned with making the orc not be bland. That they didn't want the orc to just be a bunch of, you know, greenish-skinned dudes run at you, and they all just have swords. Right. You know, it, it, they didn't want it to just be um, generic. So they gave um, uh, 
some some time to writing up several different mm-hmm. monster entries to allow you to easily employ the lieutenant technique, which we were talking about a while ago, and kind of make it a, a, a la Shadow of Mordor, where when you come into this, there's going to be some special orcs, you know, that have you know their gimmick, and they could be a threat all on their own, and there's going to be a horde of their minions. Yeah. The basic, what we would think of as just the orc, qua orc, in the Dungeon World rulebook is called the Orc Blood Warrior. And they have three HP apiece, um, but what makes them dangerous is that they have Horde, Intelligent, and Organized. And additionally, they have the Messy Tag for their weapons. And they can fight with Abandon, and they revel in destruction. So what makes them their, their reckless hate, you know, as, um, as Star Wars would say, makes is what makes them so dangerous. And additionally, even though they're just going to throw themselves at you, they are Intelligent and Organized, and there's a lot of them. So they can uh, bring Siege weapons to bear, you might imagine... Uh, they're going to be able to... Uh, they also have one piercing on their weapons, which is going to be a threat, at least for low-level characters, where they that might be all the armor they have, right? Um, is one armor, especially for uh, early-level PCs. But even for um, more and more uh, like l- uh, high-level PCs, just tons and tons of orcs might just be not feasible. You can you can narrate yourself hack and slashing against, you know, perhaps even 20 foes at once if you're a master swordsman, but 300... 3,000, you know, it's, it's simply not, yeah, it's a, it's a tall order, <laughs> you know, yeah. but that it's, it's, it's world sweeping and thematic at some point, which is, I think what the orcs expect Absolutely. to be. The, the, I, I come from the background of Warhammer orcs, where there's this thing called the Wah, which is just a galaxy sweeping campaign that the orcs occasionally go on. That is just this force of nature. Yeah. Now, I also I think one of the reasons why the book goes into so much detail about the different roles that orcs play as monsters. I'm going to take a guess at the author's intent here. I might be totally off base on this one, but knowing what I know about Adam and Sage's people, my suspicion is that part of the design of orcs in the book is not it is deliberately there to push back against the idea that all orcs are inherently evil, which is something that I typically avoid in my games. It's not an orc blood rider is not evil because he's an orc or she's an orc. They're evil because they're blood riders. They're out there or blood warriors is whichever one that was, which blood warrior, blood rider. Yeah, blood, war- blood, blood warrior. warrior. They're, they're evil because they're blood warriors that they're out there, you know, trying to pillage and destroy. There could be. Oh, so you're saying yeah. that. Yeah, just normal yeah. orcs. Um, might be of course, that's up to your setting. The fact that these guys different are versions, sure, different sure, versions yeah. of the orc in different people's tables will have different sort of natural characteristics uh different dms want them to be fodder enemies some want them to be oppressed people's metaphors for other for other people in our own society i'm not here to prescribe one approach or another but i if i were to take a guess i'll bet that that's why adam and sage deliberately made the orc not just deliberately made an entry that was not or deliberately did not make an entry that was just orc 2 hp leather clad um because I think ultimately that gets away from something important about the monster manual, which or the monster section of the book, which is that it's full of things that the PCs might be pitted against rightfully. None of the things in the monster manual are, I keep saying monster manual, in the monster chapters are, uh, are also things that might exist in the world and not be a threat to the PCs. Well, there are um, peasants and... Um... Well, you know, uh, other adventuring parties. That is true. Like that. Although uh, one thing I know about peasants is that they are altogether too prone to rise up with pitchforks and torches. I, and then they must be yes, put down. I've seen young Frankenstein. I know what's up. <laughs> the um, well, Another reason that orcs might be dangerous is because they're not just a bunch of orcs. Like They might be accompanied by an orc mm. berserker who just horribly mutated or an orc one-eye, which has the ability to 
uh, rend flesh with divine ah. magic, or an orc breaker who, who literally has an ability called Lay Low the Mighty. So yeah. that it's an ability to sort of um, put things down to size. Sure, things like I love that. the implication that that's almost yeah. a Batman versus Bane level of lowering your foe to nothing. The idea that a, that an orc uh, an orc breaker could come up to my tenth level fighter and just collapse him is pretty tempting. It's a cool notion. So that's what makes orcs. Additionally, to me, that's what makes orcs really dangerous. Is that there's a wide variety of different ways that they can fight against your your PCs, and as you escalate the threats, the the different options, the different tactics they have access to, sort of compound and combine in dangerous ways. Right. So maybe at first. I think another uh, thing that was intended by the designers here is that orcs can scale. So maybe on low level, you're just coming up against some orc blood warriors, maybe even mm-hmm. a lot of them. But again, it's just the blood warriors. Whereas later on, you're going to be, you know, drawing the ire of more and more powerful um, forces within the orc nation or, or mm-hmm. whatever it is that you're coming up against. Um, uh, for example, the orc war chief, one of their moves is start a war. That's, like, a that's huge you're, you're, Hopefully, yeah, you're at high level play start a war, make a show of power, and enrage the tribes. So this is the type of thing where you're fighting against a nation itself, mm-hmm. right? Or even just the fact that um, there's the uh, orc shadow hunter. So the orcs, at this point, if you've pissed them off enough, are literally sending assassins at you, like the, uh, who can poison you, cloak, cloak themselves in darkness, melt into the shadows. The orcs even have uh, uh, a shaman with a bunch of elemental abilities, which is pretty fun. You don't see in a lot of settings. Uh, with moves like give protection of earth, give power of fire, give swiftness of water, or clarity of air. And their instinct is to strengthen orc kind. So it's a sort of like support role. So if you want to make generic orcs more dangerous, maybe throw a shaman in there to help them out and buff them. Absolutely. What dangerous foes they can be. And it's one of those things where the more options you have to throw out your players, the more the more threats you can signal, the more fun we're all going to have at the table together. But I think that's going to do it for our, our emails today. Which means it's time for us to wind down. Now, I think we have two announcements this week. Announcement number one pertains to the spell contest, which is more a reiteration of what we've announced previously, which is that we will be concluding the spell contest at, I believe, 12 o'clock a.m. on June 30th of 2018. That's 12 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time. And I think uh, in response to some some people on the forums just that who want to make sure we're being very clear about that, that is 12 o'clock in the morning. That is a midnight on the morning of. And I'm going to allow, I think, a five minute or so grace period before the cutoff. So in case anyone's running up really against the deadline and they want to just get that last bit in, that's totally legitimate. Um, but try to stick, try to be done by 12.05 a.m., you know. We're being very fast and loose because... To me, at least, this isn't even really a contest anymore. It's just become a really awesome outpouring of community interest and support. And I've really been thrilled by all the very amazing uh, entries that have come through and that keep on coming through. So keep those coming. We're going to keep putting them up on Twitter. It's been a ton of fun. And we're we're I, I was hope I was actually wanting to read some of them on episode today, but we're refraining from picking favorites for now. Um, just to be as impartial as possible for the reason that we're eventually going to pick favorites. So eventually we will select uh, someone to have the glory of being the master spellcrafter. Um, But that having been said, shout out to, I think it was uh, my own little world on the Discord who put together a really great World Anvil page of a bookshelf with some of the spells on it. I thought that was a really cool way to 
to compose some of what has been up, some of what has been posted so far. And I really got a kick out of clicking around that. There were some good jokes in there too. Yeah, he was using um, World Anvil, I believe, to create that, which is a, a tool to create your a wiki for your own game yeah. setting that had been previously referenced yeah. on the Discord. Now, our second now, announcement... We're posting the same spells in yeah. both places. So. Now, our second announcement also concerns things happening towards the end of June and beginning of July. Those of you who have been listening for a while will remember that our 10th episode of the show was a call-in episode that no one called into, in part because we didn't announce that it was happening live until the day it was happening live. So, in an effort to get ahead of it this time, I wanted to give everyone some fair warning that on July 3rd, that's July 3rd, which is a Tuesday, Eamon and I will be getting together for the second Dungeon World Live call-in show, during which I will be reprising the role of Willem, Willem Wellmet and continuing my descent into hell to find Tar Seminus at Eamon's, uh, at uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um in Eamon's wonderfully constructed uh, dungeon that slash setting that he's running. Uh, yep. I don't remember exactly who uh, designed the setting originally, but it is very fun. It was uh, Michael, Michael, Michael Prescott. Prescott. So thank you to Michael yeah. Prescott for that. And additionally, the um, the designer who I don't have the top to my tongue right now of the, uh, the legacy weapon. Yes, which, which, is, which is how we are playing our fun one-on-one experience. We, we're doing this call-in show slash uh, actual play for two reasons. One, to showcase some of the skills that we've been talking through and look at how it's and look at how having these conversations week after week has been impacting our own approaches to the game. And two, to give people a chance to listen in and hopefully call in with their great questions and exciting participation. So we will have more to announce about specific day and time. But right now, the plan is July 3rd sometime in the evening. Once again, that's a Tuesday. And we'll be looking forward to getting on to Twitch and listening for some callers live on the air. Excuse me, live on the air. Absolutely. And I wanted to give a shout out. Uh, the Legacy Weapon is by Philip V from Encoded Designs, uh, at least according to DriveThruRPG. Well, I, I think that that's going to do it for us today, Eamon. I think so. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us around our metaphorical... Uh, in table, uh, my at least my fictional mead tasted amazing. I don't know. About I have you, some Arthur. ginger mead here. Ginger mead is my favorite kind, and it is just the most cooling and delicious fourteen percent alcohol by volume drink I've had all day. Amazing. Well, definitely uh, take care and watch your back out there in the wilds, and we'll see you next time on Lay to Find Out. Mm-hmm.